This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nation Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering five conversations from Season 3, Episode 50, our discussion with representatives of the patient and patient advocacy communities, plus from the vault, my interview earlier in the year with biohacker par excellence and best-selling author, Dr. Marcus Rani. Our previous conversations suggested that the guideline processes were too focused on opportunities for private sector product developers, mostly drug companies, to make money. I start this conversation by noting that guidelines and pathways all have as their first stage use FIB-4, an inexpensive test that will not profit manufacturers to any meaningful degree. Louise Campbell agrees with my comment about FIB-4, but goes on to discuss challenges in design and description that will render at least some of the guidelines difficult to implement due to a disconnect between systems and the lack of integrating agents and organizations necessary to implement multi-specialty care, clinical care pathways. Robert Mitchell Thane makes two key points about this. First, that NAFLD is not merely a liver disease. And second, that any solution must play on the potential for partnerships between organizations and between professionals. He asks us to envision a world where patients are identified early in the disease process and supported with such strong information and tools that many may never need drugs. Louise endorses this point of view and goes on to note that because health systems in the U.S. focus on high-cost individuals, they are trying to save 3.6 billion pounds per year while failing to provide sufficient support to earlier stage patients who will cost the systems 19 billion pounds, more than five times as much collectively. Patient advocates are, by their nature, disruptors and change agents, so it's not surprising that this conversation moves so fast and includes so many bold statements and shifts in direction. Listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue in our LinkedIn discussion group. Pardon me for being a tad Pollyanna-ish about this, but I, I'm listening, and there are a couple of thoughts that are coming through the experience I'm having that are maybe in conflict with some of what you guys are saying, so let me just put it out there. Uh, number one, any guideline that starts by pushing diagnostics to primary care and putting it in the hands of FIB4, which is remarkably cheap, in an era when so many people are working on developing more profitable, more highly margined NITs and having no success in getting those to first line, is, I think, a statement that goes, there's more at play here than just who makes the money and how much money can they make, number one. Number Two, maybe I'm biased by who I work with, but I look at the work that Ken Cousy is doing and the work that Jorn and Jeff are doing in Europe. And I don't think that's mostly about prescription drugs. I think that's mostly about figuring out how to get patients treated in all the ways that we can get them treated now. Ken, for example, advocates, even when he advocates for drugs, advocates strongly for pioglitazone, which is generic all around the world and dirt cheap. I think through an industry window, yeah, that what y'all are saying might be accurate. But when I take a look at who the physician advocates are and where the societies are going, in addition to being for bringing patients to the party. I don't think their basic focus is about who makes the money, even which doctors make the money, but it's about anticipating this wave of patients that are going to be coming in and how do we get our arms around treating them to their benefit and to the benefit of society. And then now, by the way, if that happens, there'll be plenty of money to get made. Don't get me wrong. It's not entirely an altruistic activity, but I don't think the focus is on where money gets made right now. At least it doesn't feel that way to me from what I'm looking at. So what am I missing? Louise Campbell. I don't think you're missing much. I think you're seeing the discoordination of where we sit within healthcare. Only 25% of guidelines are followed. That's often because, as we know, not everybody does all of the tests that enable them to do FIB4. Not everybody does all of the tests to do other guidelines. I think we've commented before about guidelines are there, but not necessarily followed. If you look at the recent BSG quality statement, it was a nice document, but it didn't tell me. It told me some KPIs, key performance indicators. It didn't tell me who they were aimed at. They didn't tell me how they were going to implement it. They didn't tell me who they were going to be measuring. So actually, although it was a beautiful document and it reflects a lot of the documents being produced, it didn't give me the outcomes. It didn't tell me how they're going to work it. Now, that did involve nurse advocates. It involved 
dissolved the British Liver Trust as a charity. But I've heard twice in the last six days the argument that if you put Fib4 and Fibroscan into primary care, I don't want to see them in my secondary care specialist department because I will be overwhelmed. That does not mean you should not be doing it because these are patients you're going to miss who have got a disease that could decompensate in the next year. About me as a professional physician or anything is not where I should be coming from. It is a case of let's see if we can tweak this down. 90% of what we see in secondary care we refer back. Doing the fibro scans or FIB4s to get the right patients to the right area means that you will see the right patients at the right time quicker. I think, Mike, you did a program recently with Predictive Health looking at the new algorithm. Now, they're not the only people doing it. IQV do it. Other people do do it. But they're looking at people who've been missed in the system by retrospectively going through the risk markers and high flags. These patients should be being fast-tracked because they were already missed and they were high-risk people. So how do we get these guidelines that everybody sits on and works so well and the Institute Easels, ILF, everybody's working very hard at a high level to go top-down. Primary care physicians that I sat in a room with last week, they don't even think it's a problem. They don't think they should be doing it because liver disease does not sit with them. But it is very much the majority of their patients. So I think what you see is this disconnect of systems and somebody applying something without people having already been involved in the system and I don't know how we resolve that going forward it has to be simple it has to be something that everybody's going to do because there are patients and people at the end of this with liver disease who we do need to find Robert Mitchell Thane if I may come in at this point Louise as ever immensely powerful points powerfully made my issue is that if anyone is out there thinking that NAFOLD is a liver disease they missed the bus that is the key that's the first thing secondly you know Wayne made some great points as well this is where the potential for partnership opens up the door so again going back to to my PBC foundation hat the absolute key part of what we do is walk with patients on their journey the emotional the psychological and physical self-care that's involved with living with an incurable disease now the NAFOLD situation is different because NAFOLD ultimately if early enough is curable and for many of, you know, we accept it for many, it isn't. But however, there's still emotional, psychological and physical parts of self-care that have an enormous impact. Now, I want to change our paradigm. Imagine a world where a patient is diagnosed early enough to make a difference through his own self-care. Imagine a world where the patient is diagnosed and signposted to an incredible patient support organisation that can walk with them. Imagine a world where we save squillions of dollars, pounds, you know, wherever we are in the world because we are intervening much earlier in the process, giving the patient much more control of their own journey and they're doing that because of peer support and immense partnerships between clinicians, academia, patient support organisations and then involving the patients themselves in the key decision making. And I think you've just hit the nail on the head. For me personally, it is about that upstream. We talk in liver disease and you're perfectly right, Naffle's more than a disease. It's a condition that's curable if you get that information. But when we look at the costings, everybody talks about F2 and above and we want to find fibrosis and we want to find the NASH because that's the expensive part and the life-limiting liver outcomes. Now, when you, I was looking recently at Phil Newsom's presentation and they estimated, I think there were 16.4 million people in the UK with NAFLD and NAFLD through to NASH and they cut, split it down. And given that we think of the F3 cirrhosis transplant 
post-transplant HCC as the expensive. That was costing us based on the Americanism of $1,500 per person from F0 and just basic NAFLD up and NAFL up. Now, given the pound is currently sitting around about a dollar, we can use that costing. So the expensive patients that we look for downstream cost us £3.6 billion. Pounds. The patients that we can reverse help change their lifestyle cost us £19 billion pound a year. But we're not looking because they're not our expensive patients. So my maths is either really, really bad or you're right. We are avoiding looking and locating people early enough to mean that they're not patients. They can cure their disease. They can prevent their cardiovascular disease. They can reduce their risks of type 2 diabetes. All the benefits. But because we don't see them, because they're not the high risk liver outcomes expensive, we are missing the 20 billion we could be saving and plowing into something else. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with our first look at next month's The Liver Meeting, the annual AASLD conference. Until then, stay safe, surf on, and we look forward to seeing you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.